I share two sets of opening words this morning. First from Rumi, a 13th century Sufi mystic. Come again, please come again, whoever you are, religious, infidel, heretic, or pagan. Even if you promised a hundred times, and a hundred times you broke your promise. This door is not the door of hopelessness and frustration. This door is open for everybody. Come in, come as you are. And from Felix Adler, the 19th century founder of ethical culture, in his founding address. Believe or disbelieve, as ye list, we shall at all times respect every honest conviction, but be one with us where there is nothing to divide, in action. Diversity in creed, unanimity in the deed. This is, the, this is that practical religion where, which none dissents. This is that platform broad enough and solid enough to receive the worshiper and the infidel. This is that common ground where we may all grasp hands as brothers, united in mankind's common cause. Now invite the J Street Jazz Collective to the H Street, excuse me, the U Street Jazz Collective <laughs> for our opening music. Thank you, good morning. I hope you all got some coffee in the lobby. I could use a little bit more, get the cobwebs out this morning. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Brian Pashigian, and my are in the room here with us or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you what you're looking for. We hope you'll join us after platform service for cookie and coffee in the lobby and the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email address with us. It can be found, um, you can write that on the gold sheet found at the welcome table, and drop that in the collection basket later in the service. I want to remind you to please, that was perfect timing, great example, to silence your electronic devices so you can be fully present but not before you check in on social media if you'd like.
And now I invite Shayla to read our statement of purpose so that we may hear our shared values in each other's voices. Shayla was at the Seek teacher training yesterday, and we have another one today. And we um, want to recognize all the teachers that are getting trained and ready for the year ahead for our Sunday ethical education for kids. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we, walk, as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you. As Shayla lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Still getting used to all of our beautiful new podium furniture, making sure things don't roll off. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I'm particularly mindful of those who gathered around the world on Friday for the climate strike, particularly the youth leading the charge. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. Across religious beliefs and practices, breath and silence are common themes, offering people a chance to center and connect with themselves. Here we often sing a favorite song which tells us, when I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. During this meditation time, I invite you to breathe in and out with those words in mind. On your inhale, you might repeat peace to yourself. On your exhale, you might think love. As we breathe in peace and breath and breathe out love, at the same time, notice how it feels to be silent together.
This morning's platform features three West members, all of them dedicated to the ideas, ideals, and values of ethical culture. And each of them comes to those values and that commitment from a different spiritual or philosophical, excuse me, philosophical grounding. As they share their own experiences and stories, we are all invited to reflect on how we believe, on what we believe, and how it influences what we do. How this community is living out Felix Adler's call for diversity in creed and unanimity in deed. Hi, I'm Vicki, and I volunteered to speak about being an atheist, and it was only after Amanda told me that I should be speaking for seven minutes at two platforms that it occurred to me you might want to hear me say something interesting. And I actually, I don't have a dramatic story about losing my faith. I, I, uh, I, um, I grew up in a middle-class home in Northern Virginia. I was raised as a Methodist, introduced to the church briefly, went to Bible school one summer, and I stopped believing before I entered kindergarten. Um, and it turned out that my parents didn't really believe either. They were just trying to raise me the way they thought everybody raised their children. And, and so that was kind of great, because there was one issue, and only one issue, that we never fought about. Uh, um, and as for the other kids at school, it turns out that no matter what they call themselves, most teenagers really don't care whether their friends go to church or not. You know, I just uh, never had any substantial problems with anyone because I wasn't a believer and I never felt any personal emptiness or void. Uh, so I, I never felt, I also never felt particularly superior to the Christians around me. I did have some friends who kind of took the position of, well, of course, we know there's no God, but sort of the lower orders need this superstition to keep them from running amok. And that was, that was going too far even for my adolescent arrogance. Uh, I had started in on reading the Western canon and I knew a lot of the great writers and thinkers whom I admired were religious and I certainly didn't look down on them and I didn't feel distanced from them. Um, I you know, was able to accept what they had to offer I also realized that even rejecting a supernatural explanation of the world and choosing logic and experimentation still required at least one element of faith. You have to believe that your observations are somewhat accurate, that reality is what you think we are. It is that we're really here and we're not just a figment in someone else's dream. Also, for myself, I made a faith-based choice. I trust that there will always exist people and ideas and even things that are worth loving and that I'll always find them. I know that there are people at West who've had a fraught experience growing up with religion and it occurs to me that many of these people may be raising non-believer children. So maybe I'm an example of the fact that your non-believer children can 
have uh, relaxed lives and be comfortable and not feel alienated by their lack of belief. Um, as to why some people believe and some don't, I don't know. There are those who claim that they've found a gene, I wrote it down here, it's a God gene, the vesicular monomene transporter 2, that, deter <laughs> that determines whether or not we will be inclined towards mysticism. Um, now just this past week, I went to a lecture at which I learned that so far, over 3,000 genes have been identified as having playing some role into how tall we get to be. So I'm not putting a lot of stock in this one vesicular monamine transporter two to really determine it. But you know, I it does seem like everything we do has some genetic input, and I wouldn't be surprised if genes played a role in whether or not we tend to be faith-based. I also note that the founders of the great religions all lived in a time that was very different from our own. As far as I understand, up until about the 1900s, all around the globe, it was normal to bury your children. And you know, people had to have many children <clears throat> just so that one survived. That's a very different world. And uh, one of the most touching examples of religion I know of is one practiced by these Neolithic people in the driest sand desert in the world, the Atacamos, about 7,000 years ago. They started um, the practice of mummifying, 2,000 years before the Egyptians did. And it was their people who specialize in this think the mummification process was just as elaborate as that of the Egyptians. But they were just little Stone Age tribes, and they were not mummifying their leaders, they were mummifying their family members, especially their children. And it's believed that they also didn't bury them right away, they kept them live, you know, living in their minds, you know, in, in the family uh, shelter. And it, it seems to me that any belief that helps people to endure what might otherwise be unendurable is perhaps something to be celebrated. It's just not an ability I have, and it's not one I've needed. So to me, it's how we use our faith or lack thereof to respond to this world that's important. There are people who use their faith systems and their philosophies as an invitation to lead a better life, to love more deeply, to feel more gratitude, to take an interest in the world, to ask more searching questions of others and themselves. And there are people who take those same belief systems as an excuse to do exactly the opposite. Um, at West, I think I found a place where people have chosen to use their beliefs as a way to open themselves up to the world and live more fully. And I would like to do the same. So that's why, to the very considerable amusement of my husband and my children, this old atheist is now turning into a church lady. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I think I have the gene. 
but I think in my case it's mutated. <laughs> <laughs> so when I went to college in England um, many years ago, uh, I was flooded with, uh, with uh, invitations from church groups, you know, invitations thrust under my door saying, why don't you come and have, come, come to a wine and cheese function that we're organizing? And of course, being somebody who ref doesn't ever refuse something free, I went. And um, I remember sort of teetering on my feet on the third glass of sherry, um, uh, getting into a very, very uh, intense conversation with this guy who was one of the hosts. Uh, and I said to him, you know, what, what will permit me to get into heaven, do you think? And is it good enough to be a really good person, to do all the right things, to eschew wrong things? Uh, does, does heaven open itself up uh, if I live an impeccable life? And uh, his answer, of course, was a resounding no. And, and I said, really? He said, yeah, you have to believe in redemption, etc., etc. This discussion started me on a path of thinking about, you know, what's enough? Is believing an essential part of living a good life and, and so on and so forth? And, and I'm, I'm, I must say this conversation in my mind has continued even until today. Now, beliefs, let's talk a little bit about beliefs because they are the, I guess, the source of action, are a strange thing. I grew up in India, and I think for myself, as well probably as you, your earliest, deepest beliefs were very well embedded literally almost before you actually could think for yourself. And all of one's life thereafter of education is reflecting on those beliefs and updating them into what, you, what works for you today. My parents, but much more so my grandparents, influenced me really heavily with their stories from the Indian mythology. Uh, these were what guided my early views about right and wrong, the concept of duty, my place in the world, ideas about color, about race, about caste, was set really, really early in my life, even before I had cognitively developed the ability to think about them. And since then, I've reevaluated these early influences and, and tried to construct my life around values that I now believe in. And I prefer to think about this process. I just want to put this to you, not as a kicking out of the old and bringing in the new, but really a kind of a curious layering process that one new set of beliefs kind of builds on the other and over time, it's like a, like a museum. You remove artifacts from the, from the display area and move them into the attic and dust them off sometimes. And the strange thing about these beliefs is that when you least expect them, archaic beliefs that you thought were up there in the attic suddenly become a guide to action. So this whole notion of beliefs is something that we have to work at all the time if we are to ensure that only what we really rationally believe in are those 
that become guides to our action. That said, I'm mostly comfortable in the world of deeds. You know, I, I focused on the challenge of being and becoming a good person, a good parent, a good partner, a good friend, a good member of society. So a good everything is good enough for me. Uh, that is why I enjoy West so much, uh, because we are focused on responsibility for each other and caring for each other in our community. And yet, wonderful though it is, ethical culture sometimes, to me personally, reminds me of a donut. There's a piece missing in the center. To quote Adler, we are a movement for diversity in creed, unanimity in deed. So, is spirituality left for the personal exploration of each one of us? Is this the missing middle in the donut? Or am I getting it wrong? And do affairs of the spirit enter into our community through the awesome music, the reflectedness of the deepening circles, the excellent platforms that we enjoy here in West. What do you think? For me, good deeds are critical, but simply not enough. The part that is missing for me is meaning. That which addresses the age-old questions, who am I, why is this, and what does this all mean? A sense of our place in the universe is the true source of action. This is what spirituality means to me, and it's so difficult to put these into words, so I find it easier to describe by example. This is what I personally feel when I'm listening to South Indian classical music or the music of the great Western composers. I've experienced it in temples. I've in, in, experienced it in the Sagrada Familia, uh, uh, cathedral in Barcelona and at the Aurobindo Ashram in Pondicherry in India. I've sensed this in the deepest solitude in the forest, sensed it in the majesty of mountains or sitting just sitting by a lake. I feel it when I am reading sacred texts in Sanskrit or listening to the Queen of the Night aria in the Magic Flute. The spirit rises and I'm enthralled and transported to a plane of bliss. So to me, spirituality is a deeply aesthetic experience made richer when it is shared. It's also evoked in me when I see patterns in nature. When I see it, when I, when I get a glimmer of understanding from science. These are the sources of my well-being and connectedness to everything around me. It's this that is the deepest source of replenishment without which good deeds and socially responsible behavior are not fully satisfying. Also, I believe that the challenges that we face today, whether it's climate change that Brian mentioned, or um, it's uh, two million people incarcerated, or it is the challenges of immigration, these are all issues and problems that we face in the world today which are, do not lend themselves to incremental changes in behavior. They require paradigm shifts. And the things that require paradigm shifts, I believe, 
require a higher level of consciousness that makes it possible for us to see differently. And in my view, shifts in consciousness can only come from the spiritual root. And where does God fit into all this? Despite having feasted on Hindu mythology through all my early life, an anthropomorphic God who's interested in everything that I do, or more importantly, what I don't do, doesn't do for me. Uh, fortunately, Buddhism and Hinduism uh, make it possible for us to live a spiritual life without necessarily believing in some omnipotent uh, uh, personalized God. Today, I'm moved to be a better human being when I'm in touch with the beauty of the earth, when I'm awed by the pictures from the Hubble telescope and the insights of great literature. I know that there are patterns of beauty in the universe that are beyond my comprehension. And there is meaning that resounds around the world that often I cannot fully hear. And to me, that's good enough. You guys ready for a wild ride? We're going to go down the rabbit hole. I decided to give my talk a name, something that gets to the root of who I am, but is also snazzy and theatrical. Uh, the name of my mini platform within a platform is WWSD. What would Scott do? See? OK. In preparing this talk, I turned to the trusted and definitive source for internet information, Wikipedia. I typed in, what is a Christian? The answer is probably not a surprise to most of you, but I was shocked. A Christian is a gullible simpleton who believes in an old white guy that lives in the clouds, has a long beard, and knows what's best for everyone. Okay, I didn't say that, but that's how I felt when I was growing up. By the time I'm in my late teens, I'm pretty sure I'd broken at least seven of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would dress as the devil for Halloween all the time. I lied on such a regular basis that even I believed me. And I fantasized how I would cheat on my taxes when I was older. As another evil person likes to say, I was a bad hombre. But how was I to know that in the end, a fortune cookie is what would make me a Christian? That's the end of my story, but in true Quentin Tarantino fashion, let's jump back to the beginning. I don't want to blame my childhood growing up or others who influenced my formative teen years or myself refusing to be an adult as I became an adult, but I want you all to have some insight as to who I was then and who I am now. My goal here is not to say anything that might trigger anyone, but it's very important that you understand what brought me to my beliefs. Spoiler alert, I have no interest in to sell Christianity to anyone. I have never and I never will. I'm not Tammy Faye Baker, who has mascara running down my face trying to get you into heaven for a small fee. My faith is for me alone. It gives me hope and serenity. I love that Vicki is strong and happy with what she believes, and it makes her complete. I love that Rajesh uh, has a deep experience with spirituality at a higher level of consciousness. I love that we are all different here at Wes, and that each one of us knows what is best for you. So no one ever has to believe in what I believe, but in the words of the great Stephen Colbert, it's okay if you don't believe, that just means more Jesus for me. <laughs> okay, uh, serious time. 
I grew up being horribly abused by an alcoholic father. Imagine the most severe forms of punishment and then multiply that by 20. As much as I wanted it to stop, I felt the need to protect my mother and sister, somehow deciding I was strong enough to take it. My dad left when I was 10 years old and it was the happiest day of my life. I still, I wrestled with what did I do wrong and why couldn't he love me? So with just my mother, sister, and me alone now, I was given the responsibility of being the man of the house and to take care of the family. Yeah, that's the job you wanna to give to a 10-year-old. So being a kid would have to wait. Depression, sadness, and anxiety replaced playing, going out, and having friends. I got married when I was turning 24 years old. I thought that's what was missing. I knew how to be responsible and adult since I was 10, but I didn't know how to become a real adult without resentment of not having my own childhood. It was, hard to, it was hard to be a husband when you'd rather be hanging out with friends, playing video games and such. When we had our first child, I was so afraid to be a dad because of my own father. I never drank and swore I would never raise a hand in anger, so I was ill-equipped to be a father because I was never taught. So how did I raise my kids? I was their best friend. Yeah, that didn't go well. And when my second son came along, I was even more of a let's have fun type of guy. As you can imagine, my marriage, uh, as you can imagine, my marriage was in trouble and I let it all slip from my fingers. I only, got to my, I only got to see my kids every other weekend. They were so hurt, I was so depressed, and in the end, the father that I hated and promised never to be was left with kids who questioned if I loved them. Things got worse as time went on. I didn't want to be alive anymore, but I didn't know how I would do it. All I could imagine was how much it would hurt my friends and family. If I couldn't make it look like it wasn't my fault, maybe lives wouldn't be destroyed. So I gained a tremendous amount of weight and hoped that my heart would just stop. That didn't work, so I lost all the weight plus much more, hoping that my organs would stop working. They did not. That was the first time I prayed to a God, one that I didn't believe in, to give me a disease and take me out. The plan in my mind sounded solid and I wouldn't have to be the guy everyone remembered as a coward. Instead, people would say, oh, poor Scott, he should have taken better care of himself. But God wasn't in the mood to help me out and I never came down with a life-threatening illness and my pain continued. Okay, here's the part of the story that gets weird, if it hasn't been enough already. And to that point, months later, I woke from a dream that was pretty much always the same dream. I would be on the ground looking up into the sky as the, uh, as the clouds grew angry and dark. I would feel heavy and unable to move, all while having a hard time breathing. But this time the dream was different. The dark clouds went away, the sky turned blue, and a voice was whispering in my ear. The voice was saying to me, God is the answer you are looking for. And as ridiculous as that sounds, I woke up for the first time not feeling despair. So what would any crazy person do in this case? I signed up for a weekend course at a church for something called Christianity 101. By the second day, I stopped making fun of it and started to listen. At the end when it was over, I started feeling inner peace that I had, hadn't felt ever. As a parting gift from the course, I received a CD with a minister from the church talking about faith. It was weird because so many things he talked about on the CD seemed directly relate to me and my life. At the end of the CD, the minister closed out by saying, 
God is the answer you are looking for. Uh, it was like, come on. It's not a stretch to believe that a CD about faith would have a phrase in it, but strange from uh, a dream to this. I went home and I was flipping channels, a thousand channels and nothing was on. I got up, went to the bathroom, and when I returned, a movie called Left Behind starring Kirk Cameron was on. Yes, I said Kirk Cameron, but here I was, I'm watching this and I'm getting emotional. What the hell was going on? I felt strange and couldn't believe that from a dream where a voice was telling me God is the answer you're looking for and from a CD that said the same thing has me crying at a crappy Kirk camera movie about God. When it finished, I drove and picked up Chinese food for dinner. I finished the meal and I see the fortune cookie. I open it up, I take out the message and figure maybe I'll get some good lottery numbers. Uh, I read it and then I read it again and it said, God is the answer you are looking for. So as you can imagine, that was it for me. The moment, from that moment on, I was all in. My life felt energized with possibility. Fear and anger were no longer were going to drive me. I had the answer for personal happiness that I didn't need to sell anyone, debate with anyone, or prove to anyone. I thought my life was complete and then I met my wife, Heather, and she's the most amazing person I've ever known. She cares with all her heart, gives until she cannot give any more, and fights for everyone who needs a champion. She introduced me to what was the missing piece of the puzzle, ethical culture and Wes. I fell in love right away with the message that uh, Wes had. It was a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person, joyfully celebrating together and supporting each other through life. Not about the existence or non-existence of a deity, but instead embracing the diversity of its membership. I felt I wouldn't be ridiculed at West for my beliefs, but encouraged to help, but encouraged to help change the world. The God thing for me, the God thing is for, is for me, but all of us, together recognize the value of community, support, celebration, and action. This has become my community, and I'm so honored to be a part of it. Thank you.